Hello, and welcome to yet another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have Abdullah from MBI Deep Dives. Uh, you guys might know him from on Twitter, where he goes by Mostly Borrowed Ideas. So, Abdullah, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me, Andrew. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a great conversation. But let me start this uh, podcast off the way I do every podcast, and that's by pitching you. You know, MBI Deep Dives is relatively new. I think you just launched the MBI Deep Dives, what will eventually be a paid research service, a month or two ago. You've published two ideas so far, Uber and then the idea we're going to discuss today, Etsy. And, you know, it's just it's exactly the type of research service that I personally like. One person doing deep dives into interesting ideas and particularly like, you know, actually putting your your money behind your research and your ideas. You know, that's the whole point of a stock service. It's not our research in stocks. It's really not to drive research services. You want someone putting their money behind it. And I know you said you put 10% of your personal account into Etsy. So uh, I've really enjoyed the free subscription so far. And uh, I know it's not going to be free starting in November. And I plan on being a pay- paying subscriber. Makes me sad because I love free things. But I, I love value add even more. So uh, right. I- I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, it's free right now. So I encourage all of our listeners to give it a free trial. So that pitch out the way, can you give us a little background on yourself and kind of how you came to find MBI? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, generous introduction. <laughs> uh, you know, and and for the, and for the record, I, I I do enjoy your podcast. I I, I watched a bunch of them, uh, and yeah, I, I, you always seem to find you know pretty great pretty you know great guests, and I'm honored uh, to be to be one of your guests. Uh, so yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of my background, I am uh, originally from Bangladesh. Uh, I was born and brought up in a small city uh, named Bogura. Uh, I finished my high school uh, in, in Bogura, and then I moved to uh, Dhaka, uh, which is the capital of Bangladesh. Uh, Dhaka is pretty much the center of the country. You know, it's a, it, almost 50% of Bangladesh's GDP happens in, in the capital, Dhaka. So wow. everybody, yeah, everybody kind of moves eventually, you know, more or less uh, to Dhaka. So I, I, I went to Dhaka when, uh, you know, for my college and I uh, majored in finance, uh, you know, at my college. And after graduation, I uh, started working at a local farm covering Bangladeshi banks in the sell side. And I did that for almost three and a half years. And then I moved to U.S. Uh, to pursue my MBA at Cornell. Uh, so after graduation, uh, after graduating from Cornell, I uh, joined at Madison Investments uh, to work as a generalist in their U.S. large cap equity team. And uh, I pretty much had the opportunity to cover, you know, all sorts of names from like Amazon, Boeing, United Healthcare. Uh, intuitive surgical insurance brokers. It's pretty much all over the place. And I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed, uh, you know, that process of being a generalist and, you know, having the opportunity to look into so many different industries and sectors. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, I, since I'm not American, I, I need work authorization to be able to work uh, in this beautiful country. And uh, for, you know, I don't want to get into the details of the immigration process, but I currently do not have work authorization. So I'm in the process of moving to Canada, you know, hopefully in a couple of months. Uh, so, you know, when I had to leave uh, my prior role 
And unfortunately, I started writing pretty actively on Twitter, like, you know, since this lockdown was started. And pretty, you know, to my surprise, I was able to kind of build a following in a relatively short, short period of time. And as I was thinking about what to do, you know, with my life going forward, when I moved to Canada, whether to you know look for a job once I moved there, or, you know, it occurred to me, maybe I can just, you know, do something on my own. Uh, maybe I can launch an independent research services. Uh, and basically that's how MBI Deep Dives was born. I, I know, like I said, I really enjoyed being a journalist and uh, I, you know, I wanted to remain a journalist and that's why, you know, MBI Deep Dives is basically, will, will operate like a journalist. Uh, I, was, uh, I was at Madison Investments. So I'll hopefully look into all sorts of names from all uh, different industries and sectors and you know, publish one deep dive every month. Well, look, I, I would just say I, I'm looking forward to the service, and you know, I think some of the smartest investors out there. You know, the, the first one that pops to mind is uh, Scuttlebur, David Kim, who was our third or fourth guest. You know, I, I think they, they've run these subscription services very successfully. And one of the issues with these really good subscription services, and I would put Scuttlebur in that category, is you know, they the value add is so much so far below what they charge, you know, like something he does. I don't read a lot of sell side research, but something that a scuttlebird piece or, you know, uh, Jeremy Raper, who was a, another guest, who was our first guest on the podcast. Like when these guys publish a piece, I value it so much more highly than anything you get from sell side kind of for free because they make them the commissions and stuff. But, you know, I, I, I totally could see like the report you did on Etsy is as good as any sell side initiation that uh, that they're going to do. Let's dive into a little bit. So you said you're going to be a generalist. And, you know, the first two reports, Uber and Etsy, those are tech growthy platform companies. You come out on two different pace, pieces. Uh, Uber, you were bearish on. Uh, Etsy, you were bullish on. But it, the first two pieces are growth tech. What other, what other stocks or industries are you kind of looking at for the near future for publishing? Right. So when I think about my investing philosophy, I... I, I typically don't try to box myself as like value or growth investor. I typically, you know, I see myself as just an investor. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of what I'm going to uh, cover, uh, you know, uh, at in MBI Deep Dives, I, I'll basically look at companies that I am primarily interested in as businesses. Like I, I, I that's my like starting point. I, I don't start from like looking at their multiples or valuation or, you know, uh, or like, you know, what exactly uh, is going on in terms of pure, you know, pure number spaces. It's basically, it's, I purely start from whether I'm curious about this business, whether I would like to know more about this business. You know, in many times, you know, market give you opportunity. Like if, if, you, if you do your work, even though let's say a particular name is trading at 10 times, 20 times, 50 times uh, revenue multiple, uh, you know, sometimes these stocks do experience drawdowns, right? And uh, market can, so market can give you opportunity uh, if you have done the work. If you just give up saying, oh, this stock is trading at 50 times, there's no really point in covering this particular name. Let's just move on to something that's trading at, you know, two times, uh, you know, like 10 times, uh, you know, earnings multiples. Uh, I, I typically don't try to, uh, you know, look at it you know, from that perspective. I, I am generally going to cover names that I am interested in. And on, frankly speaking, I will also take uh, requests from many of my subscribers. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm very fortunate uh, to be able to build, uh, you know, it's, I know it's only been like you know, two months, uh, not even two months, and there's a long way to go. But, you know, I was just looking at some of the people who subscribe to my 
services. And it's very humbling uh, to look at the kind of quality of the subscribers. So obviously, you know, there are a lot of subscribers who I deeply admire. And if they request me something, uh, I, I may eventually cover those names. Uh, it, it may not happen instantly, it may not happen the next month or month after that, but you know, it may, it may happen in month six or month eight. Right. So that's, that's how I'm going to approach it. And I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm approaching it with a very open mind, uh, not, you know, boxing myself with value or growth, like just, just to give you context, uh, my, my, uh, my, I guess, largest position in my own personal portfolio is Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, I own companies like Dollar Tree uh, or insurance brokers. So, you know, those are typically known as, uh, you know, uh, value stocks, right? So it's my own personal portfolio is a mishmash of value and growth names. And I imagine that, you know, uh, over the long run, MBI Deep Dives will, will cover all sorts of names. Uh, but it is true and it is possible that there might, you know, uh, it, it, it may be bent towards more uh, to you know, growth names because, uh, it's you know the, it's the businesses that are growing super fast, growing you know pretty rapidly. Uh, usually, they turn out to be more interesting than the one that is just you know growing at two three percent every year, right? So it is possible that you know I may lean towards more growthy names, uh, but I like I said you know uh, it doesn't mean that I will box myself out of uh, the you know the typically value names uh, that you, you 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 see in the market. No, look, I think there's two things there, there that I just highlight. Like the growth names, I agree with you. I, I think a lot of the growth companies are a lot more interesting. And like one of the reasons I started this podcast is I, I would always research these growth names and I'd have like good feelings to be like, oh, these this thing, I think it's got a really bright future. But I'd look and say, oh, you know, five times revenue, 50 times EBITDA. And I'd pass and I, I would be investing in these, you know, eight times earnings. Like, And every time, like, I just be like, oh, I just think the, oh, the eight times earnings stock, it, it's got an okay outlook, but it probably deserves a trade for 12, 14. And, you know, the past, maybe it's just the environment we've been, but the past five years have taught us like the eight times earnings stock probably goes to six times earnings. And then the <laughs> 50 times EBITDA, four times revenue stock goes to 500 times EBITDA. So one of the reasons I started this podcast was, uh, you know, a lot of the investors have taught me so much and have really helped me like, you know, I think I know you're bearish Uber, but I think that's Mario Chabelli on Uber or Elliot Turner on Dropbox. Like, it's just been really fun to to talk and kind of like expand your mind. And I, I think that's one of going to be the great thing about the service, just researching things that are interesting. Let me talk. Ask one more thing. So every stock you mentioned, you know, U.S. focus. I heard Berkshire, Etsy. Um, there was another one you mentioned when we were Dollar Tree. Like all of them are U.S. focused, you know. And when I look at that, like that's great. I, I'm a mainly U.S. focused investor, but you're from Bangladesh, you know, South Asia. Um, there's much less coverage over there. I think it'd be tough to launch a research service entirely focused on Southeast Asian stocks. But like, why not go, you know, kind of where less people are fishing and use some of your local area expertise and look more at Bangladesh or South Southern Asian stocks? Right. Uh I, 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 I frankly speaking, uh, I'm approaching this MBI deep dives is more from what I'm curious about perspective and less about how I want to make more money. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely possible that if you start fishing in, you know, in, in kind of undiscovered areas of the world, like, you know, Bangladesh would be probably one of them. Uh, it's possible you can probably make more money. Uh, investing in those markets if you, you know, stick to it. Although, you know, that can be questionable in different circumstances, but, uh, you know, markets in Bangladesh is obviously much more inefficient uh, 
than markets here in the US. Uh, but like I said, you know, just to go back to my previous point, at the same time, businesses are probably infinitely more interesting in the US than what you experience in, in those markets. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I am, I'm about to hit 30. I have plenty of time to look at all sorts of markets and companies. Uh, at my, you know, uh, you know, you know, when I'm 20, 30 years old, I want to spend more time understanding some of the, you know, world's best companies. And, and, and I'm open to, and I, there's nothing that will stop me from looking at or, you know, even covering a Bangladeshi name and sometime in the far future. That is definitely, like, you know, I, like I said, I, I honestly, as an individual investor, I, I really don't have to box myself uh, to anything. Uh, but I, I, I do imagine that, you know, it's probably 80 to 90% of even, or even more uh, of the names that I'm going to cover will be US focused, uh, primarily because it, these are the businesses that primarily, you know, deeply interest me uh, as an investor. Uh, but I'm definitely not claiming uh, that, you know, these are the only possible opportunity sets that's out there. Uh, yeah, markets like Bangladesh or India, uh, they're obviously, uh, I'm pretty sure there are great companies out there as well. Uh, and, you know, uh, they can be interesting as well. And I'll hopefully eventually get to, the, get to some, of, some of those names as well. No, it's just, you know, like uh, I think four years ago, right now there are tons of banks that trade below tangible book value, right? Like uh, Wells Fargo trades, I think, for like 60% of tangible book value. But you can, you can go find small community banks that trade for 70% of book value. And all of these guys like have pretty clean balance sheets. They're reporting decent earnings and ROE. And four years ago, I feel like I would have been going crazy for these things. Like, oh, my God, back up. But right now, like I, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just a sign of the markets. But I increasingly find myself like, why am I going to look at those where if I get like, you know, an Etsy, right? Like it's, it's a 10 bagger in what, like two or three years, right? Like you get the Etsy, right? And it's 10 bag or go look at a small Canadian company where I, I think like a lot of the international smaller firms are just crazy, mis- crazy underpriced or there's some just wild prices out there. So I, I'm kind of with you. I'm increasing like, let's go look at really interesting tech, tech growthy companies or let's go look at really quirky, like kind of smaller international companies. The place I'm increasingly avoiding is about four years ago, where I would have spent most of my time like trading below tangible book value, like classic value investments. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I like recently uh, uh, commented to someone's tweet that you know we will never out of opportunities. We'll never run out of opportunities. You know, if yeah. we don't have enough you know retirement money when we were you know 70, 80, 80 years old or sixty years old, it won't be because you know we. Uh, we operated in a market where just there were not enough opportunities. There will always be opportunities in every possible market in every geography, right? Uh, so I'm not in a hurry at all. Like, you know, those banks, those international markets will stay there and th- there will be opportunities all the time, uh, you know, uh, even if it's like five or 10 years down the line. So uh, I am taking it very, you know, in, in a very slow manner. Uh, so, and that's why I just wanted to focus more on what I'm curious about, what I am interested uh, in learning more, and you know, as I and it's possible, like you know, like I said it in my uh, website, that it's possible of the next twelve deep dives, I may be only bullish about maybe two or three names, right? So, uh, and that's 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 a real possibility, and you know, we can't really, uh, I I don't think you can pos- you can you know pitch uh, strong uh, you know uh, like you know. St- Stocks are like you know very bullish ideas every month. It's just very difficult to do so. Uh, so I, I I just you know want to approach this. 
I will skip learning about different businesses. And within that process, I will stumble upon ideas uh, where I, I would see opportunities. Uh, fortunately, Etsy, I, I, I felt is one of the stocks. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I put my money uh, where my mouth is. No. Well, we'll talk Etsy in one second, but I will just say like, you know, that's one of the things I've liked most about something like Scuttleblurb where it is a research service. It is not a stock pitch service, right? Like he, he gives you an overview and sometimes you can kind of feel he's bullish or bearish on something, but he's just there to give you an overview. And like, I'm paying to, I'm not paying for stock ideas per se. I'm paying to increase my knowledge. And I see a lot of that in MBI as well. Obviously you said you bought Etsy, but like what it is, it's a deep dive into Etsy. Uh, it's a deep dive into Etsy or Uber and some of the fundamentals behind them. It's not necessarily a pitch. And I, I quite enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, I guess one slight difference uh, from, let's say, Scuttleburp's approach to mine uh, would be, I, I think I'm more explicit in terms of my bullish or bearish tones. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I just wanted to make clear uh, to my readers where, you know, where I stand so that they understand my possible biases uh, or, you know, uh, or like, you know, some blind spots uh, when I was looking at the name. Uh, it's, I, I felt that would be easier uh, for the reader to, uh, you know, kind of uh, guess where I am coming from. And that's why I, I'm just much more willing to, uh, I, I say, I, I guess, you know, to explicitly state whether I'm bullish or bearish. Uh, but, you know, what Scuttleberg does, and he does this so brilliantly, uh, you know, he definitely, uh, you know, explains in much more detail about the businesses, which I, I guess most professional investors, at least, are much more interested in. You know, if you are running a fund, you're probably not really looking for, you know, stock pitches from every random person in the internet, right? You are much more interested in understanding businesses and then taking a call yourself, whether you would like to, yeah. you know, take a position. Yeah. All right, last one, and then we'll turn to Etsy. Uh, you said you take requests. You know, one of the <laughs> stocks that has obsessed me the most over the past month, and for actually the past three to four years, IAC has obsessed me the most the past three or four years. And over the last month, like something just clicked for me with Angie's List, and uh, I've gotten extremely bullish on Angie's List. I don't know if you've looked at that or not, but if you haven't, I'm putting in a request for some Angie's List coverage at some point in the future. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I, I, as a matter of fact, I actually own I, I know ISC, so I do have exposure to you know whatever happens with Angie going forward. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, admittedly, I haven't spent as much time on Angie as I have, like let's say, on Etsy or Uber. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely a name that I have my own interest to to you know dig deep into uh, sometime in future. Maybe sometimes within like next three to six months, uh, I'll, I'll 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 probably do a deep dive on Angie's list. Yeah. One of the things that worries me the most about IEC is like every smart growth investor I talk to uh, over the past three years, I would say is generally pretty bullish on IAC. And like, you know, this time last year, IAC traded below the value of its match and Angie's list uh, stock. And yeah. I, I was kind of having trouble because I was like, every single person I talked to is bullish on IAC. You had to change the trades for a discount, what's going on. And now IAC spun off match and it's like, Angie is about 50% of the value there. And still, like every person I talk to is, is pretty bullish IAC, to be honest with you, some more than others. And I just really like, it feels like the ultimate growth, growth or value investor like hedge fund hotel. But it, you know, I, I just I love the assets in there. But anyway, this podcast is not about IAC as much as I wanted to be. This podcast is about Etsy. Uh, most people listening to this podcast are probably somewhat familiar with Etsy, though I, I still think there are some misperceptions about it. So why don't you just give us a quick overview of what Etsy is and kind of what attracts you to the company? 
Right. So it's is a two-sided online marketplace connecting millions of buyers and sellers, uh, you know, uh, selling handmade vintage, which is like more than 20 years old and craft supplies. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a niche within the you know, broader e-commerce uh, market. So they don't sell every possible thing that's available in the retail market. So they typically sell only uh, the you know, vintage uh, craft and handmade items. And, uh, and it's a, it's a, it, like I said, it's a two-sided marketplace. So Etsy is the owner of the marketplace. They don't, they don't have the first party that you have, first party business that uh, let's say Amazon has. So it's just you know, connecting uh, the buyers and sellers and you know, uh, being a facilitator in the, uh, as, a, as a middleman. Uh, so they are typically more U.S. focused. Uh, I think only 36% of their gross merchandise sales is international uh, as of 2019. Uh, they identify six uh, countries as their kind of core geographies, namely U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, France, Germany. Uh, but you know, if you are in New Zealand or Finland uh, or Austria, uh, you can definitely go to Etsy. And start selling, or you can go to Etsy and you know and buy something or order something uh, from a seller based in, let's say, Ohio in a, in, a, in the United States, right? So uh, you can do that, but they identify those six markets as kind of their core uh, geographies. And uh, yeah, and then in terms of their gross merchandise sales, it's it's uh, last year it was almost five billion, I think, uh, because of COVID nineteen, and you know we are kind of all forced to buy everything online. So it's probably going to reach somewhere around eight and a half billion. So almost more than 70% growth year over year uh, in 2020 uh, compared to in, in 2019. So just, and I know Amazon launched a competitor, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit, but just for like, I, I looked at this company a few years ago and to, much to my detriment passed on them. But, you know, one of the things that stuck with me, I'm not a big shopper, you know, but if I'm going online, like if I'm, let's start from the buyer's perspective. If I'm a buyer, you know, I personally, I would just go to Amazon, get free day, free two day shipping and have whatever I'm getting delivered straight to me. Why am I going to Etsy over Amazon or eBay or Walmart.com? Yeah. I mean, so it, it's, it's a, just a kind of customers or kind of, you know, buyers uh, that are somewhat different from, you know, let's say a typical buyers like you at Amazon, like I, I, I'm probably more like yourself. Uh, I also, you know, typically end up uh, going to Amazon or, uh, or, or, you know, some other like eBay even. Uh, but, you know, Etsy's customers are somewhat different. First of all, like if you're interested in handmade items or craft or vintage items, those three words are associated with Etsy much more than it is associated with, let's say, Amazon or, or eBay. Like if you're buying jeans, like you are not going to, uh, you know, go to Etsy. If it's only if you're like, you know, something quirky, something more uncommon, something unique, uh, you know, you're looking for something handmade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first name that really comes to your mind, uh, you know, is Etsy. Uh, now it, it may sound controversial to, pe- to people. I actually don't think uh, they are really a competitor of Amazon or eBay or even, you know, IG shopping. Because to be a competitor for, for Amazon or IG Shopping or, or eBay to be competitor of Etsy, they first have to grab the mind share of the buyers. Like when I'm thinking about craft item supplies or vintage or 
you know, handmade items, they have to kind of make me rem you know, remind that I, you know, Amazon is also a possible option or IG shopping is a possible option. If you go to IG shopping and search something that is also available at Etsy, you would see, you know, uh, like, you know, there are all sorts of names uh, that are not like handmade or that are branded items, right? So it's, if you're, if you, you know, there are a lot of customers who care to uh, care about, you know, uh, small independent businesses, right? Uh, care about much more about supporting them. Uh, and, and, and if you are one of them, and if you're looking for something, like I said, quirky, you would end up in Etsy rather than in, in Amazon and eBay. So just two things there. I just want IG shopping. You dropped that a couple times, Instagram shopping, right? Right. Right. Okay, perfect. And then the other thing, uh, you know, I, you mentioned handmade a couple times. And one of the, the cool things about Etsy, I think, and again, I'm not a big shopper. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but is you can actually like I, go shopping and, you know, get, I get a painting to put up there because everybody's looking at my podcast and seeing uh, a barren wall behind me. I get a painting and I can actually communicate with the seller and say, hey, this painting, can you put Andrew and Alicia in the middle of it or something? and get it customized that way, which is something that Etsy allows for that I don't really think you can do within Amazon or an eBay or something. Can you correct me if I'm wrong or am I right there? You are absolutely right. I mean, if Amazon starts allowing that and those sellers would go crazy because the volume at Amazon is substantially higher uh, than the volume, you know, um, a third-party yeah. seller experiences at Etsy. I mean, I, I, I want to make you know, one thing clear that the end markets of you know uh, the you know the broader retail, which is the end market here, is just you know insanely large market, right? It doesn't have to be either or. Like you know, it's not really either Amazon or Etsy or eBay or Etsy or IG Shopping versus Etsy, right? All of those you know companies can be successful. Obviously, some more so than the others, uh, but you know they all can coexist. Uh, it's just you know it's a, it, we are we're talking about a trillion trillions of dollars of markets here, right? And if you think about it, so last year, uh, based on 2019 numbers, I was estimating uh, that Amazon, like Etsy, is basically 1.5 percent of Amazon's you know GMS, right? And five percent of eBay's GMS, right? You and know, GMS gross market sales, that's the entire uh, kind of market volume. Amazon does $100 billion in sales a year or something on the Amazon website. Gross merchandise sales. Yeah. And yeah, Amazon does actually like something like $260, $270 billion. Yeah, I was just pulling it. Uh, right. And eBay does like $90, $90 billion. And like, again, these are kind of dated numbers uh, in a based on 2019 numbers. Uh, obviously, all those numbers have uh, increased a lot you know, during this pandemic. And in e and Etsy was five billion last year. So yeah. it's you know it's it's a it's a it's a it's peanuts to something someone like Amazon or even eBay. And I, I don't think they're really you know Amazon or eBay is going to stop and say you know what uh, eBay is doing really well. Let's focus on the handmade market because that's uh, that's that's where they are really doing well. You know, uh, even even Facebook or IG shopping. You have to understand like when Mark Zuckerberg is looking at this opportunity, this e-commerce opportunity, he's not interested in 20, 30 billion dollar markets. He's much more interested in a trillion dollar market because the company he runs is, uh, you know, 700, 800 billion dollar market cap. So, you know, adding a 20 billion dollar uh, marketplace or, you know, being successful in, in a 20, 30 billion dollar marketplace doesn't really move needle at all to for either Zuckerberg or Bezos. So they are competing at the 
you know, at, at the, the most broad definition of, you know, e-commerce uh, retail. And Etsy is, is going to comp- continue to focus in a very niche segment of that. And I, I talk about, like, even in, even in 10 years, even if uh, Etsy continues to grow at a pretty rapid pace, it's probably going to be, you know, 25 to $30 billion, uh, you know, GMS in 2030. And by the time Amazon will have a trillion dollar of GMS, so it will, you know, right now it's 1.5% of their GMS, 10 years from now, it will probably be two and a half percent of their GMS. It's still going to be penance to them. And Amazon is not going to, you know, stop and focus on handmade items uh, at the expense of their core marketplace. Yeah, we'll, we'll co- I want to come back to the competitor argument because I, I do think it's an interesting point, and I agree with a lot of what you said, but I disagree some of it. But uh, just to focus on the size, like one of the things that struck me in preparing for this is I was reading a transcript with the CEO, and he said, look, you know, even after all this growth, like we're going to do $2 billion in home sales goods this year. And home, sa- home goods is by far our largest category. And he was like, look, if you look at $2 billion in the grand scheme of all the home goods that get sold, I think it's like, we're, as you said, it, it's it's one percent of the entire market. Like it, we're, it's absolutely nothing. You know, like it, it's very difficult for Amazon. Is just hey, you want to get this cost? You want to get a counter? Like we're going to ship five hundred of them to you. But you know, if you want something custom, there's not really a place for Amazon to do that. And Etsy allows for a lot of, as you said, a lot of talking between the buyer and seller and customization that it, it, Amazon's platform just isn't set up for that. Uh, the other moat they said, and I'd love to hear what you, you say about what you think about this, and I think this will come into competition as well, is when you're looking on Etsy, because there's so much customization, search is incredibly difficult. And they talk about how their technology for search, like Google is not going to be, it's almost like the Google, right, where it can handle all these tail risk searches. Amazon's not set up for that. So can you just dive into how search and customization actually increases their moat there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not as easy just, you know, uh, typing a product uh, on, on the search bar. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a, a bit of a learning curve, even from the buyer's perspective, uh, to really know what exactly they're looking for, uh, right? So it, it takes time. And, and, and like I said, there's a bit of a learning curve associated uh, from the buyer's perspective. And Etsy has been trying uh, really hard to... Uh, to really improve the search experience uh, of the buyer, uh, like it, it may sound, it may sound pretty easy fix, uh, but they actually started, you know, uh, uh, kind of sorting the product based on like you know free shipping and all that, which is you know, which sounds pretty obvious that they should have probably done like years ago, but it's actually a pretty recent addition, right? The fact that you know they were still doing so well even without this. Uh, kind of obvious fixes, right? You know, if, if people obviously want to probably, uh, you know, buy from sellers who offer free shipping services and all that, uh, but, you know, it, it, it's been just been added like, you know, probably a year ago. Uh, so they have been working on how to like improve the search experience. And also, and I, I mentioned in my piece, uh, they used to focus more on like bottom of the funnel marketing. Like, you know, if you search like uh, vintage scarf, uh, on Google, right, and uh, you know, and you you probably can, will come come across uh, Etsy Etsy's marketplace, and you will go to Etsy and buy, let's say, a vintage vintage scarf from Etsy. Uh, but you may not realize that all the other possible you know products that you could also buy from Etsy. Uh, so uh, you know, and and Etsy did not really invest in in in, in those sort of marketing messages before, uh, right? Now, now they're trying to you know. Like put their money 
uh, into work in terms of creating a more broader message and kind of educating uh, the you know, customers, the buyers, that there are a lot of, lot more things than just you know vintage vintage scarf or you know like our small quirky uh, you know items that you you can buy from Etsy. You can your opportunity like in your product set or categories are much broader than that. And I think because of the COVID, uh, that education has kind of uh, exponentially accelerated compared to what they experienced you know like like last two three years ago. So let's stay on that because there are actually three bear cases I want to talk on. And, and this gets to sure. the first one, which kind of will bleed into the second one. But you know, I think the one of the bear cases is, look, if you're a customer and you want to, like Etsy trades at 10 times sales. So a piece of the bear case is obviously just valuation, right? But I, I do think a large piece of it is 10 times sales for a platform, you know, that, that actually might make sense. But they say Etsy, yes, it's a platform, but it's not a platform like Amazon or something where there's a lot of repeat usage, right? Like for Amazon, if I go on there, I might get subscribe and save to have protein powder and bottled water shipped to me or something, right? Like it drives a lot of habitual repeat usage. Whereas for Etsy, uh, and I'm not a shopper, so maybe there are some people who go and buy vintage scarves once per month or something. But if I look up vintage scarf and I find Etsy and I go buy something, like that's a one-time purchase. And the next time I want something like, their customer acquisition cost doesn't result in that high of a uh, customer lifetime value because they don't get those habitual user purchases, I think would be one piece of the bear case. So am I right or wrong there? And could you kind of address that? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of truth in, in your you know concerns. Uh, so only 5% or 5.5% of their total buyers, total active buyers are actually habitual buyers uh, who they define and who are basically defined as uh, you know, buyers who bought from Etsy more than more than six times in a year, or spent like more than I think two hundred dollar per year. Uh, so, uh, and they are like only five point five percent of the total active buyer base. So they are uh, definitely a small minority, and uh, many people like 40 50 percent of the buyers are basically one time buyers, as you mentioned. So that, there's definitely you know element of that uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, like I said, it's a, it's, it, you know, you, you we're not, we're not looking at a $500 billion market, right? Uh, that, you know, we, we need to acknowledge the extent of the debate. You know, if it's a debate between, there's a huge difference between the debate between, let's say, whether it's a hundred billion dollar, $150 billion market. And we're, we can, we're talking about like this 50%, right? And there's another debate, whether it's a hundred billion dollar market and $500 billion market, right? I disagree if someone says it's a $500 billion market. I don't think it is. Right, but I'm 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 willing to say it's it's actually probably closer to 150 billion dollar market than 100 billion dollar market, right? And 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 because we're talking about such big numbers, I think you know those nuances can get lost. That you know you may need you may not need uh, a lot of habitual buyers for Etsy to be able to continue to outperform or continue to you know able uh, continue to be able to generate compelling returns. And I, I think. You know, overall, the biggest competitor for Etsy is not really, you know, even today is not Amazon or it's or eBay or uh, IG shopping. It's actually the physical stores. So, forty-five percent of the buyers who buy, like who people who buy craft items or handmade or vintage items, forty-five percent of them go to Etsy, and thirty percent of them go to actual physical stores or craft fairs, right? And fifteen percent of them go to uh, the this seller's personal websites, it's, it's, it's a Shopify sellers, right? And 11% go to Amazon, eBay, and all other marketplaces. So 
uh, at the end of the day, you know, Etsy's its primary primary competition is not really Amazon, it's uh, eBay or some other marketplaces. It's actually the physical stores, and I and I think I have high confidence that if the competition is against those physical stores or craft fairs, Etsy is going to win win that competition. Yeah. No. Look, I think going back, I mentioned Angie's List, and you know, for Angie's List, they're trying to connect a person with a plumber or an electrician, and historically, that's been done by word of word of mouth referrals, right? Like. I would ask you, hey, who's a good plumber? You would tell me and I call them up. And what Angie's List argues is, hey, this is moving online, right? Like people want to go and basically see, hey, here's a plumber who's got 20 good reviews. Here's a time you can book them, done. And I, I think it's the same for Etsy, right? Like the one thing that the internet has taught us time and time again is convenience and speed wins out. And like for Etsy, I, I agree with you though, there is something to, uh, there's a treasure hunt feel to going to a craft store and kind of searching that, Etsy's trying to recreate a treasure-like feel on the site, but uh, you know there's something to being in person and kind of sifting through the goods. But let's yeah, talk- it's it's not going to be you know uh, it, physical stores will continue to play a very strong role for for a long period of time. You know uh, it doesn't have to be you know eighty twenty. It can be like even if it becomes like you know sixty forty uh, that there's still a lot of room left for you know marketplace like Etsy to continue to grow. And there's and, and you you discuss TAM, but there's also probably enlargening TAM, right? Like for a craft store, like people actually have to drive 30 minutes and go do that search, and it takes a, a pretty long time. Whereas if you've just got it online, like that should just enlarge the TAM because it's easier to search, yeah. pop on. You can make that custom request a lot easier and a lot quicker. Uh, so I think that and, you know just just to just to kind of you know touch on uh, I guess uh, the TAM TAM aspect like. If you're really interested in vintage items or craft items or handmade items, uh, you know, Etsy allows you to uh, look at handmade or, you know, these vintage items from all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just, you know, there's a, there's a global uh, appeal. And that's why I feel like Etsy is a much stronger platform or marketplace business than, you know, Angie's is uh, because it's, it, they enjoy not hyper-local, but, you know, more cross-border network yeah. effects like you know if Etsy wants to go to if you if it Etsy wants to go big on Austria for example you know they really don't have to uh, make sure that you know there are um, a million of like you know there are like thousands of Austrian sellers on the platform they can just focus on on the consumers on the buyers they can they can yeah. just spend their marketing dollars on that and uh, and they can just uh, you know, uh, order things from neighboring European countries or from or from Amer- America or from, you know, some other different parts of the world. So there's a global appeal of, you know, these handmade items, which makes it much easier for, uh, for, for Etsy to scale a lot faster, right? And at the same time, you know, uh, you know uh, unlike Uber, uh, their suppliers are differentiated. Like, you know, it, it, since these are not commoditized uh, products, you know, every seller is basically putting their own thoughts, ideas, culture, uh, and philosophy into making those uh, products and, uh, and, and items, uh, the supplier's basis is ex- extremely differentiated in nature. Like if tomorrow 10, 10 million suppliers uh, go to a, you know, Etsy platform and start selling their products, that will, met, you know, that will significantly uh, improve the experience of you know, the active buyers on the platform uh, at Etsy. We cannot say the same thing for for a platform like or marketplace like Uber, right? So, uh, if you like significantly increase drivers' base in a particular job, if you increase like uh, uh, like um, drivers in New York City by like a million 
uh, you know, drivers and on, on Uber platform, uh, the benefits to the riders, uh, yeah, it's definitely, there are some benefits, but there's also an asymptote uh, that, that can be reached at some point and there may not be as, and the marginal benefit may decrease uh, pretty fast after, after a certain point. Well, number one, how dare you besmirch Angie's list? That's number one. <laughs> no, I hear what you're saying, but let, let me flip it around a different way, right? Like, so Uber and Angie's list, what we're talking about is a hyper-localized network, right? Yeah. Uh, and Etsy, what we're talking about and is- that, and, that, and just to be clear, Andrew, there's a definitely a value to that. You know, I'm just comparing these two different businesses and I'm arguing that one business is better or superior than the other, but doesn't mean that, you know, uh, these marketplaces like Angie's List or Uber are worthless or, you know, they don't have any value. They obviously have any value, but it's just, you know, much more difficult to scale and probably inferior in terms of business, you know, as a marketplace compared to, let's say, Etsy. So I, I hear you, though. I think there is a counter to that, which is like Etsy, right? Because it's uh, the suppliers, because they're glo- because the suppliers are global, right? Like they do have an incentive where, Hey, if I'm doing a lot with uh, handmade scarves or something, right? I can opt out and I can go and create my own handmade, like the Shopify thing, right? Yep. Whereas for something like, particularly Uber, uh, particularly Uber, though, at some point I believe Angie's list suppliers will run into this problem. Like, if I'm a car driver, even if I'm the best car driver in the city, if I if I pop off of Uber, boom, my my business is done, right? Uh, yep. So for Etsy, I do think there's. Uh, there are a lot, there are alternatives, particularly for the best people. Whereas for Uber, there's just absolutely no alternative for the suppliers because of that hyper-localized network. So I, I do, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I mean, I think Etsy. No, no, that point is actually, you know, I, I accept your point and I, I absolutely agree. You know, there are pros and cons to, you know, you know both, both, you know, business models and both marketplaces. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, there is a risk. That if you are really a fan of a particular, you know, uh, seller on Etsy, and you fall in love with the products that person makes, uh, yeah, there's a there's a huge possibility that you would rather, you know, and the seller might actually, you know, ask you to go to his his or her personal website and buy it directly from from the website, so that he or she can bypass the take rates or the you know transaction charges that Etsy uh, charges on the seller, right? That is a possibility, and and it is it is a you know it is one of the risks that I I, I do think it's in mind face because of this uh, you know conversations between buyers and sellers and the customized nature uh, of the, of the platform. Uh, it is definitely a part of the uh, you know, one of the risks uh, that uh, you know you have to consider. I, I I take your point. I accept your point. Yeah. No. I, and look, I I think Etsy is a great business for us to scale. I just uh, you know it, it is one of the things like a hyper localized market. It it, it obviously doesn't get as much scale and it makes it much more difficult for one of them to move into Australia. At the same time, if you dominate hyper-localized markets, like for someone to come in and beat you, like if I'm going to go in and beat Uber, I can't just beat them in America. I have to go beat them in New York city. Then I have to go beat them in Dallas. Then I have to go. So it it is an interesting version. And actually speaking of that, that kind of brings us to the third. Oh, no. Actually, we're not even on a competition. Let's let's talk about the second bear point, which uh, going back to the customer lifetime. The second thing is, look, this is expensive in its own right, right? This is 10 times revenue, which 10 times revenue is the new 10 times EBITDA, right? It's a marketplace and everybody wants to buy marketplaces for 10 times revenue. But I think a second piece of the bear point would be, it's not just that it's 10 times revenue. Revenue has been hyperinflated by COVID, right? Like Etsy, of all the online suppliers, Etsy may have been the one that benefited the most in terms of growth. 
from COVID. And I think what a lot of bears are saying is, yeah, that, that they're probably going to see a sustained boost over time. Some people are in it, but it's not going to be this big, right? Like in this year, they're going to sell a billion dollars in mass alone and fingers crossed in two, in two years, that billion dollar mass, the revenue will basically round out to zero. Right. And that's a lot of revenue loss for Etsy. So uh, a lot of this home decor that people are buying right now, yes, it'll grow, but it, it's probably at a peak, a peak right now, and they're going to lose a lot of that once COVID kind of blows up. So how would you talk to a bear who's saying it's not just expensive, it's, it's expensive on inflated numbers? Right. I, I just want to touch more on the valuation space, uh, and I, I just want to uh, please, please. probably talk more about like how I think about valuation. So... You know, I, I often joke to with my friends that valuation is just like religion and politics. Uh, everyone has an opinion, right? You know, and it's, it sounds very interesting to have a conversation around those three topics, like valuation, religion, and politics. But nine out of 10 times, people really don't change their opinions. And, you know, it oftentimes become not a good faith discussion, right? Uh, so people who talk about like, you know, 10 times revenue is expensive. And uh, I, I often see this quote, you know, flying around Twitter, uh, the stock, uh, oh, sorry, Scott McNeely quote, uh, who is the CEO of Sun Microsystem. And he talked about like, you know, 10 times revenue, how you do, what were you thinking? Why you do 10 times revenue? Hate that quote, hate it, absolutely hate right. it. Uh, I'll be honest, you know, the first time I read it, I found it very compelling and I, it almost made sense to me, right? And then I kind of, you know, taught myself that actually it doesn't make any sense at all, right? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I see like two groups of you know people, uh, people uh, when it, when when it comes to valuation. Like one are like hyper focused on valuation all the time. Like you know, and I, I would like to almost ask them like if okay, fine, ten times is expensive. Like I don't know how you came up with that. Like there's like you know we can't really look at a multiple and just say it's expensive or cheap, right? If it's okay, if it's ten times, uh, if ten times revenue is expensive, like what do you consider as cheap? Is it eight times? five times and if it's let's say let's say it's five times like you know uh why do you think mr like mr market is not a charity right the market is not a charity like you you can't expect to have businesses like you know uh, inequality businesses to uh trade at a dark chip level right right you know uh it will be uncomfortable for sure and i i do think like you know if i were looking at etsy at time it would obviously be more uncomfortable take uh, to buy at let's 150 than i let's i bought it at 110 Right. And those are the things that, are, you know, investors today have to wrestle with every day, whether this is the right valuation, because valuations do matter. Uh, right. And th there's this other group of you know, people who thinks, you know, it doesn't matter what, what you pay at all. Right. You know, uh, they can just look at a drawing on a page and put 20 billion dollar market cap on a, on, a, on a company. Right. So so I obviously, you know, I, I think I, I would, I would dis deeply disagree with both those people. Uh, I do think valuations matter. What you pay obviously matters. Uh, but you can't just look at a multiple and directly conclude whether it's expensive or cheap. There's, there's no such magic formula, right? So you have to kind of do the work and, uh, and come up with a conclusion. So basically I, the way I look at my valuation is I probably have like, you know, two-step process. Uh, one is like, you know, it's what I call like belief and think process. So first step is what do I have to believe to uh, like, what do I have to believe uh, to make a decent IRR on this investment, right? And the second step is, do I think, you know, those assumptions that I had to, I had to believe to make that decent IRR are reasonable, right? 
I, I don't believe I have some special insight, you know, uh, in terms of where it will be five years, 10 years down the line. Uh, I can't possibly forecast those numbers uh, with, with any more accuracy than you would, right? So uh, to me, uh, my first starting point is what do I have to believe in? Like what sort of numbers Etsy has to put up uh, to be able to generate a decent IRR? And the second step is, and I, I eyeball, the, eyeball those assumptions and then take a call whether these assumptions sound, uh, you know, credible or reasonable. And my answer was obviously that you know, I, I do think these assumptions are reasonable. To kind of touch on your point about the mask and, you know, uh, like a billion dollar of, uh, well, so far, I think uh, till Q2, they sold like $346 million of mask. Uh, yet may reach a billion, let's, let's just say it's a billion dollar of, uh, you know, mask sales in 2020. Uh, that's GMS, that's not revenue, right? So revenue is basically uh, 16% of that. So it's a $160 million of revenue uh, on that number. Uh, it's also true, non-mask sales grew 93%, right? So it's not just the mask, uh, you know, as you said, the home furnishing items and all that. It's not easy, you know, uh, I think it's, it's fair to agree that it, it's not easy to forecast uh, what numbers will be in 2021 or 2022 even, right? Uh, but if I look at it, like, since more and more people are now aware of the marketplace uh, and they have kind of explored what all the, all the possible items they could buy, from this marketplace. And I, I think the CEO mentioned how bread making products of all things became you know, widely popular. Obviously bread making products were probably not going to be sold as, you know, as well as uh, they did in this year, but it will be something else. You know, even I cannot sit here and, and predict those numbers. And I can tell you even Etsy management doesn't know, right? So it's, it's and that's the beauty of the model, right? The, the third party sellers, it is their job. It is their responsibility to figure out what exactly is going to work in 2021 or 2022, right? And they will come up with these products and that is the bet, you know, and that's the power and the beauty of the marketplace. And I think that's that's why it's continuing to going to work. Whether it's going to be 15%, 10%, it honestly speaking for long-term shareholders, I don't really sleep over it. Like, you know, maybe uh, Etsy will have 20% drawdown in next year. That's totally fine. As long as the you know, March marketplace remains, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, its, in, its, in a decent shape and uh, management continues to execute, uh, I, I don't see why, uh, you know, a certain slowdown in growth in a particular year would cause me to lose sleep. No, it, look, that, that was so well said. I'm actually envious because I, I was ready to make the same point. But the beauty of a marketplace is you don't know what the next big thing is going to be, but people are going to transact it over your marketplace and you're going to take a tax. You know, as you said, in May, nobody thought it was going to be bread baking. You know, I think of something like the the Apple App Store, like, yeah. Among Us is the hottest game out there right now. And it, it was released two years ago and no one played it. No one knew it was going to be, be the big thing. But the great thing about the Apple App Store is they're taking a cut of every sale on that game. So uh, it, it's the beauty of a marketplace. Let's just, uh, I, I'm cognizant of time here, but let's quickly touch on competitors. You know, I think when I say, hey, you're an online, it's an online retail marketplace, right? And when you hear that, your first thought is Amazon is going to destroy that. And I believe Amazon actually tried to move into this space a couple of years ago. So why, why don't you just touch briefly on the, the Amazon risk and how they're foray into uh, kind of hyper, not hyper, into uh, custom homemade goods. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, 
sometimes it, it's it's very helpful to kind of look back and see what happened like you know even today people still talk about amazon and ebay or even facebook as potential competitor for for etsy but this game has already been played you know in last 5 years uh, so etsy you know came to ipo in 2015 and 6 months later amazon handmade was launched right yeah. so it's been 5 years and when they launched it etsy was cut in half uh, within 3 months right and from the lows of 2016 it's actually 20 bagger right so uh, this game has already been played and i think uh, to me the verdict is clear you know etsy has been a winner in that particular segment and like i said you know amazon uh, that, you know sh- probably shouldn't care uh, about the success of such a niche uh, when they have opportunity to go after you know trillions of dollars of you know market right so it's 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 just a uh, the size of the market that you know marketplaces like amazon or facebook or even ebay uh you know operates is just very different in terms of scale compared to compared to etsy and you know i i don't see why the next 5 years will be any different uh from the last 5 years right so amazon couldn't compete with etsy uh you know etsy's marketplace basically grew almost 3 3 4 times in in last you know 6 uh, 7 years uh when amazon was obviously you know raging through the all the you know re- retail marketplaces so uh, i don't see in the next 5 years or 10 years is going to be any different uh so that's why i know i'm 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 very comfortable uh with with the path going forward the one thing i would push back on you is i agree i i think the games already been played right like amazon launch handmade and failed but i so i think the moat has been not completely settled but largely settled at this point the one place i push back on Hey, this is too small for Amazon to worry about. Like I don't I don't think that's true because if you're a marketplace like if Amazon could eat this, Etsy 17 billion dollars of value. Amazon would not have to if Amazon could invest it, if they could invest 2 billion dollars about 2 billion dollars to kind of take down Etsy and add 15 billion. Like maybe Amazon as a whole doesn't care, but I can guarantee you there's a product manager or something who cares over there, right? So yeah. I don't think there's anything too small like Google. If you look at the grand scheme of Google, the uh the Expedia type OTA travel was pretty small compared to Google but Google obviously wanted to eat that because they're a platform and they could profitably extend for very little investment instead i i think the issue is can you can you do it and can you do, can you do it and the answer is no like etsy has a marketplace they have that flywheel already spinning and to kind of extract all the buyers and all the sellers it's a chicken or the egg problem that can't be solved the one competitor and we mentioned this earlier that i i think is interesting is instagram You know, when I when I think about Instagram, I I see a lot of things like they've got a huge user base. It's a very visual product. I could see a lot of ways that that could be an Etsy competitor at some point. Can you just talk briefly on Instagram as competitive threat? Right. I mean, there's we we don't know much about exactly how Instagram shopping is going to uh you know, going to operate. Uh you know, it's it's just a very recent uh, launch. But I think uh I think I kind of also touched upon this uh I know uh, on in one of my answers earlier. I think it's going to be it's likely likely to be similar to what what happened with Amazon handmade. Uh like I said in the search experiences it is very difficult like if you're looking for a handmade or vintage item uh and if you're looking for that on uh, an IG shopping or you know Facebook marketplace uh it's not going to be an easy experience for you. Yeah. Uh, even 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 at Etsy it's not an easy experience right it, you still have to kind of you know look for it you can still kind of have to know what you're looking for uh 
uh, when the whole marketplace itself is just primarily designed for uh, for for these handmade or uh, vintage items. Uh, so for Facebook or IG shopping uh, to kind of you know uh, focus on that when they're also targeting this broad e-commerce uh, retail space, right? It's going to be even more difficult and even more cumbersome from for the customers to uh, to to really you know uh, to have a to have a decent and facile experience uh, when they shop around IG shopping. Again, like you know, it's still early days. It, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, uh, it is possible that you know uh, they may come up with something entirely different. Maybe IG shopping can come up with IG handmade or something like that. And it would be interesting to see whether you know they are any better than Amazon handmade was. Uh, so yeah, I mean. As an investor, as, as investors in the stock market, we have to be on our toes and and kind of follow what happens in a in a different you know competitive environment, different uh, market environment. Uh, but so far, what I've seen in the last five years and starting uh, this company, uh, you know, over 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 you know uh, a few months, uh, I think I'm comfortable in saying that Etsy is likely uh, to remain uh, the leader of this marketplace by by a significant margin. Yeah, you you mentioned. Uh... Etsy selling off by 50% when Amazon launched Amazon Handmade. And that reminded me of two or three years ago when Facebook launched Facebook Dating and Matches Share sold off by 40%. And I remember, I mean, a lot of people were saying, I, I mean, just no chance. And, I, you know, personally, I, I would just love it if Instagram launched Instagram Handmade or Instagram Local or something and Etsy stock sold off 40%. Because it, it, it's one of the things I look for now, you know, like uh, if a big company says they're going to try to attack something with a flywheel, like, always be you want to be wary but in general the market sells off hard and it's very difficult to attack one of these flywheels or one of these platforms uh anything etsy that we haven't covered that you you think we should be talking about or anything i think you know i also wanted to focus on the role the management new management played josh silverman like he became ceo uh in mid 2017 and the stock was actually, you know, wasn't really doing great, uh, and not just, you know, for Amazon or all, you know, or things like that. They also were not executing well. Like, you know, their GMS growth was kind of, you know, mid to low teens, right? And when Josh became CEO, actually, market wasn't very positive. The stock went, went down by like, you know, fourteen percent on the day he was announced as CEO. Oh. Uh, but, yeah, what it did. Uh, in a, over the last three years, it's, it's just you know it's just great to watch. Like you know, it, every quarter I think uh, almost every quarter uh, the GMS has been like either high teens or like almost twenty percent actually almost every quarter, uh, even before the pandemic. It's you know during the pandemic it's like 120 percent, 130%, something like that. But you know even before that it's it's been consistently twenty percent GMS growth and on every quarter. So I just want to highlight you know. It, Execution matters a lot in any business, no matter how how you know great business you have, how great marketplace you have, and you still need uh, someone to execute well, like continuously uh, for a long, long period of time. And I think Josh has been an instrumental uh, you know figure uh, to be able to uh, to do that over the last three years. And 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 the stock has been a ten bagger since he became the CEO. So he obviously did a great job. Yeah, and prepping for this podcast, I was reading some transcripts and just he was pulling out like Maslow's hierarchy of needs right off the top of his head in response to some questions. I was like, oh, this is a CEO who's pretty pretty well read and pretty prepared, and I agree he's done a great job here. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, hey, Abdullah, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'll be sure to link to MBI Deep Dives in the show notes and everything. You know, I, I've really enjoyed Uber and Etsy. 
I, I really enjoyed this conversation. You know, I, I feel like your discussion of the platform, uh, you should just highlight that. That should be one of your highlights and pitches for deep dive and stuff, because I thought that was fantastic. But look, this was great. Uh, we'll have to have you on in a couple months when NBI deep dives is kind of up and rolling and fully operational and you publish a really interesting new piece. But really appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll chat soon. Yeah, I look forward to you know further invitation and I really, really thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank Perfect. You. Thanks again, man.